Hey everyone, it's Pacific. I'm the creator and showrunner of Insidious Inspirations, and thank you for tuning into our first episode, The Week of Launch. You know when you first start a horror movie, and you get that black screen, and there's a line of white text? It's uh, something along the lines of, this was inspired by a true story. Well, I've been seeing that for almost my entire life, and I thought it was time that I maybe investigated that a little bit. How true are these stories? I mean, surely there's not some psycho killer donning a Halloween costume and killing people, right? Or Hannibal Lecter, the cannibal doctor, can't really be based on a true person. But as I started looking into all of my favorite horror movies, I discovered some terrifying truths. And of course, if I have to live with this information, so do you. So, uh, this week I am sharing with you the first episode of Insidious Inspirations, Bloody Disgusting's inaugural true crime podcast, uh, and also my first major non-fiction podcast, which I'm incredibly nervous about. Uh, but if you enjoy the show, you can find Insidious Inspirations wherever you listen to podcasts, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Overcast, and all your other favorite apps. You can also find more information about the show by heading to insidious.show. All of that to say, I hope you enjoyed the first episode. And if you do, subscribe to the feed and tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to get our show into the ears of new listeners. So, without further ado, enjoy this week's episode. It's Friday night. Your popcorn is popped, butter, and your fizzy soda is cold. It's time to watch a horror movie. The show begins, the music rises, and you feel goosebumps prickle across your arms. The movie is chilling, the murderer frightening, but eventually, well, the credits roll and the movie comes to an end. Maybe tonight you leave a hallway light on and sprint into your bed and pull the covers over your head. You may be scared and... The fictional killer's visage haunts you, but rationally, you know it's just a movie, right? In this show, we'll be diving into the true crimes, urban legends, and historical myths that inspired all of our favorite horror movies. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and you're listening to Insidious Inspirations. This week, we're looking at the chilling inspirations behind THE Cannibal Doctor. This is the real-life story of Hannibal Lecter. When Thomas Harris first published his novel, Red Dragon, in 1981, he probably didn't know that it would give birth to a five-book series, iconic horror movie, and even a TV show. In 2013, 25 years after The Silence of the Lambs was first published, Harris released a special edition of his novel with an updated introduction. In the introduction, Harris admits that Hannibal Lecter is based on a real doctor, one he met almost 50 years ago. Of course, Harris doesn't out his inspiration, instead only referring to him with the pseudonym, Dr. Salazar. But it was 2013, and an army of internet sleuths and journalists quickly uncovered Dr. Salazar's true identity. But before we get into that, let's go back to Harris's chance encounter. 
It's 1963, and a 23-year-old Thomas Harris is working as a journalist for the pulp fiction magazine, Argosy. His editor asks Harris to travel to Topo Chico, a prison located in Nuevo León, Mexico. Harris has one objective, interview Dykes Askew Simmons. But before his assignment's done, Harris will have an experience that lingers with him for the rest of his life. Simmons was born in 1928 and lived most of his life in Texas. At a young age, it's speculated that he was often bullied and ridiculed for his cleft lip. At some point in his life, Simmons underwent surgery for his cleft lip, but the Z-plasty repair had turned out poorly, likely adding to his insecurities. Most accounts of Simmons describe him as a laborer in and around the Fort Worth area, often working odd jobs like a crane operator. During his adult years, Simmons had a few run-ins with police over small crimes and, in 1952, was brought before a jury and ruled insane. Simmons was sentenced to a mental hospital near Wichita Falls, where he stayed for seven years before escaping in 1959. A few months after his escape, on October 12, 1959, Simmons found himself fleeing to Mexico. He presented fake documents at the border and then drove into Nuevo León in an Oldsmobile. On the same day, Raúl Pérez Villa Gómez, a local dentist, broke down on the highway while driving his younger brother Manuel and two sisters Hilda and Martha. It was early in the afternoon, and the autumn sun beat down on the family. Their engine was smoking and they were stranded. Fortunately, they were on the highway. Someone would see they were having car trouble and might offer to help. At the very least, Raoul and his family could get a ride back to town and get a mechanic to retrieve their car. It didn't take long for another car to pull in behind the family. A stranger got out and offered them help. He was an American, but that didn't matter much. He approached the family, gave them a cordial wave, and then asked to look under their hood. The man tried for several minutes to repair the car, but nothing seemed to work. And now, the stranger was starting to get irritated. Then, Hilda and Martha began to giggle. Perhaps they had some inside joke or just laughing at the ridiculous situation they were in. Now, the stranger wasn't just irritated, he was furious. He stomped back to his car and threw open the door. He leaned inside, looking for something. Before the Villa Gomez family had time to react, the stranger pulled out a gun and shot each family member several times. He instantly killed Raul, Martha, and Manuel. Then the stranger fled the scene, likely unaware that Hilda was still alive, despite being shot seven times. Hilda was quickly transported to a hospital where she described her assailant to the police. The stranger was tall, lean, had blonde hair and two golden teeth, and he drove a Chevy. Shortly afterward, Simmons was stopped for a routine investigation, but quickly released. He didn't match Hilda's description. Simmons was short, stocky, and had dark hair. The police searched for several more hours, but were unable to locate the supposed assailant. That's when they turned their sights on Simmons again. It became known that Simmons showed fake documents at the border, and had recently escaped from a mental institution. The police tracked down Simmons again, then handcuffed and escorted him to a nearby hospital where Hilda was waiting. There is some controversy about this point, as some claim Hilda also identified several other people as possible assailants, including her own doctor. Others claim that Simmons was deliberately dressed up as Hilda's attacker and even given a blonde wig. At this point, 
Hilda was weak and in an inscrutable amount of pain. Hilda looked over Simmons, and after a moment passed, she said, I am almost sure. May God forgive me if I have made a mistake. Hilda would pass away just a few hours later. Despite contradictory evidence, Simmons was convicted and sentenced to death, becoming the first ever American to be condemned in Mexico. Oddly enough, Simmons would also be the second to last person to ever receive the death sentence in Mexico. This quickly gave way to a political issue. The U.S.'s State Department didn't like the optics of an American citizen being imprisoned abroad, but the Mexican government didn't want its courts to buckle under the pressure of its neighboring country, so a compromise was made. Simmons would likely be released if he petitioned to commute his sentence, but this means he would also be admitting to guilt. So Simmons refused the offer and was sent to Topo Chico, where he'd serve until he faced capital punishment. But Simmons had a daring idea. He'd simply escape. After all, he'd just escaped from a mental hospital in America. Topo Chico was a harsh prison, located on the outskirts of Monterey. There isn't much information on it anymore, but the prison was eventually closed in 2019. Before it closed, it was home to a violent riot that left 52 people dead. In 2014, a report composed by the United Nations described the prison as having poor infrastructure, with very little water, light, or ventilation in the cells. While we don't know exactly when Topo Chico fell into a state of disrepair, it's likely that these poor conditions and lax guards led to Simmons' escape attempt. It took three tries, but he'd finally succeeded in 1969, ten years after he'd first been imprisoned. According to Time magazine, each time Simmons tried to bribe a guard. The first two times were to no avail, but on his third attempt, Simmons received a key to his cell. Then, an accomplice snuck in a nun's clothing, makeup, and rosary beads. Simmons retrieved the disguise and then bided his time. He knew that a congregation of nuns came to visit the prison every Sunday. He just had to make it through the week, then slip away while the nuns were visiting. When Sunday arrived, everything went according to plan. Simmons put on his disguise, unlocked his cell, and crept through the prison, careful to slip past any patrolling guards. Just as the congregation was leaving, he was able to slip into place. He kept his head down, hoping to avoid arousing any suspicions from the guards or his sisters. Then he simply walked out of Topo Chico through the front doors. Mexican authorities rebuked this claim stating that it was a cover story fabricated to exonerate Simmons' brother, Carol, a fireman from Fort Worth. On the day of the breakout, Carol had visited Topo Chico and, due to heavy rain, was allowed to park his car within the prison and out of view of any guards. While there, Simmons was able to sneak out and hide in a secret compartment beneath the car's back seat. On April 9th, Simmons returned to America, along the same route he had fled to Mexico to a decade ago. This time... Simmons didn't have his real passport or forgery on him. Fortunately, at the time, the U.S. didn't require passports for Americans coming home. Simmons was likely given a quick look over and then waved into the country. Shortly after returning, Time magazine interviewed Simmons where he said, After ten years, I've gotten hot showers, clean sheets, rugs on the floor. No more adobe. I'm free. However, Simmons' first escape attempt didn't really go as planned. 
Simmons had bribed a guard to unlock the door and provide him with a pistol. Instead of letting the inmate out, the guard took the money and then shot Simmons twice in the leg. Fortunately, the prison had a skilled doctor. Alfredo Bali Trevino. Dr. Bali was able to operate on Simmons' leg and saved his life. Almost a year later, Harris arrived. He found Simmons' cell holding a man with the eyes of a fierce turtle. Simmons wore dark sunglasses and had several small scars on his head. Simmons was terse, dodging most of Harris's questions or deflecting to different subjects. At one point, Simmons even resorted to introducing Harris to fellow inmates and even his wife, who was allowed a conjugal visit on Saturdays. Stonewalled at every answer, Harris was defeated. He hadn't learned anything since arriving and was worried about going home empty-handed. Then he had a bright idea. If Simmons wouldn't talk to him, perhaps Topo Chico's doctor would. Harris talked to the warden, who, surprisingly, was more than happy to arrange the interview. Harris recounts his chance encounter with Dr. Bailly in the opening prelude to the 25th anniversary of The Silence of the Lambs. The warden walked Harris through the prison before stopping in front of a heavy metal door. The warden unlocked the door and issued Harris inside. The young author was greeted by a sparsely furnished clinic. A lone cabinet stood against the far wall. It was brimming with various medical instruments, needle and thread, bandages, sterilizer, and even blunted scissors. In the center of the room sat two stools, and atop one was Dr. Bailly. Harris would later describe the doctor as a small, lithe man with dark red hair who had a certain elegance about him. While Harris was soaking in his surroundings, Bailly was sitting unnaturally still, analyzing the young author. After a moment, Bailly invited Harris to sit. Immediately, the doctor launched into a barrage of questions. When you looked at Simmons, how did you feel? Did you notice him wearing sunglasses in his cell? Perhaps using the sunglasses to make his face appear more symmetrical? Harris was taken aback. He had come in seeking answers, not expecting to be prodded by the prison's doctor. Then, Bailly asks Harris if he might see Simmons again. Harris says he might, and Bailly suggests that the author doesn't wear sunglasses to his next interview, because Simmons might see his face in the reflection. Before the author can process this, Bailly continues on, pointing out Simmons' hair lip implying that a lifetime of bullying likely left deep psychological scars. Bailly wonders if Harris will ask about Simmons' past convictions, or if he'll only focus on his present crimes. Before Harris can answer, there's a knock at the door. The warden informs the doctor that he has patience. Harris gets up, likely a little dazed from the flurry of questions, and thanks the doctor for his time. They shake hands, and Harris invites Bailly to dinner if the good doctor ever makes it up to Texas. Bailly smiles and assures Harris that he will next time he travels. The warden escorts Harris through the prison once more. Harris makes a remark about the doctor and asks how long he's worked at the prison. Then the warden bursts out into laughter. He says Bailly is crazy. He'll never leave this place. Next, we learn more about Dr. Bailly. But first, a quick ad break. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. 
Simmons wasn't the last person to be sent to death's row in Mexico. That sentencing would fall upon the shoulders of Dr. Alfredo Valle Trevino. Valle was born in Mendez, Tamaulipas on October 2, 1931. He was born into an affluent family, the second oldest of five siblings and one of three brothers who attended med school. Valle was described as often wearing light-colored ensembles, suits, white shoes, dark shades, and a golden Rolex president. He was a reserved and a strict man, not unlike his father. Reportedly, both men often carried around a gun. When he inevitably went to prison, Balyu wasn't allowed a weapon, but his hardened attitude in crime earned him the respect of his fellow inmates. It was said that even after he was imprisoned, Balyu was permitted his Rolex president, which he wore every day. Both inmates and guards were too scared to attempt to take it from him. But four years before Harris's visit in 1959, Dr. Balyi was a free man. He was a young doctor of 28 and practicing in a small office in Monterey, Nuevo León. At this time, Balyi had been in a relationship with a 20-year-old medical intern, Jesus Castillo Rangel. It's unclear how long the two men dated, but they'd known each other since high school. When Castillo began looking for a job, it's likely he went to Balyi first and became the doctor's assistant. Sometime after they started working together, they began dating in secret. In fact, Balyi later confessed that Castillo's sensitivity to the matter is what captivated him. We know that two to three times a week, the couple would discreetly meet at Balyi's office for a romantic encounter. Things seemed to be going well for the pair, until after several months of dating, Castillo asked to borrow money. At first, Balyi was taken aback and upset, but after a short back and forth, the doctor gave in and loaned Castillo a significant amount. Castillo promised to return in a week and pay Balyi back. A week passed, and Balyi demanded his money back. Castillo didn't have it, but reassured the doctor that he just needed a little more time. At this point, Balyi seemed to have lost a lot of respect for his partner, and, after a brief fight, they broke off the relationship. A month later, on October 9th, and a week after Balyi's birthday, Castillo returns to the doctor's office. At first, Balyi is relieved to see Castillo, perhaps hoping they can put all this nonsense behind them. Though, if that's how he feels, Balyi likely doesn't show it, keeping up his stern demeanor. When Castillo finally offers Balyi the money, any chance of reconciliation quickly vanishes. Castillo had brought only half of what the doctor had originally loaned him. This was the last straw. The two began shouting insults at one another. As tensions boiled over, Bali punched Castillo, immediately knocking him out. It's unclear if what happens next was a spur-of-the-moment decision, or if this had been something Bali had done before. As Castillo fell to the ground, the doctor quickly turned around and began rummaging through his cabinets, looking for a small vial of clear liquid. Perhaps Bali found the vial just as Castillo was waking back up. Wasting no time, the doctor grabbed the syringe, filled it with the clear fluid, and easily injected it into Castillo's arm. Sodium pentothal is a barbiturate, often used to help patients slow their heart rate and relax before receiving anesthetics. It's also known to cause drowsiness, chills, and shivers. In high enough doses, it can be used to induce medical comas or even cause death. 
If Castillo wasn't fully unconscious before, he very likely was now. With his victim subdued, Balli dragged Castillo into the office's bathroom and laid him in the bathtub. Quickly, he slit Castillo's jugular vein, then proceeded to watch and wait as Castillo jerked and spasmed before bleeding out. Once enough blood had drained from Castillo, Bali returned to his office, grabbing a scalpel, and returned to the bathroom. With immense patience and delicacy, he began to dismember Castillo, slowly separating the head from the torso, then the arms, and finally his legs. With the body now reduced to pieces, Bali wraps them up tightly and begins moving each limb into a compact cardboard box. Now, all that's left is to bury the victim, to bury Jesus Castillo Reinhel. But Bali knew he couldn't do this part alone. He loads up the box containing Castillo's remains and drives to Francisco Carrera Villarreal's house. Francisco was a friend of Bali and Castillo. Occasionally, Francisco would work as the doctor's driver and might have even been privy to Bali's secret relationship. Bali asked Francisco to help him bury the box, claiming it was dangerous medical waste. Reportedly, unaware of the box's true contents, Francisco drove the box and Bali to Castillo's aunt's house, where they borrowed shovels. Had it been Bali's idea to go there? Perhaps Francisco suggested it, and Bali couldn't think of an excuse. When the men arrived, Castillo's aunt was hesitant at first. It was getting late, after all. And what they need shovels for, anyways? Bali chimed in, saying Francisco was going to help him bury some medical waste. Castillo's aunt might have noticed something strange. Perhaps Bali seemed shaken, a characteristic unlike the stern doctor she'd come to know. If she knew something was awry, she couldn't place it. A moment passed. She turned inside and brought out two shovels for the men in her doorway. Now, they needed somewhere to bury the... medical waste. Bailly likely had a place in mind, La Noria, a ranch about two hours outside of the city. It was far, but he was doing a favor for a friend, so Francisco drove to La Norisa. When they arrived, the sun had set, but that suited Bailly just fine. They were away from the prying eyes of people and under the cover of a night sky. It didn't take long for the pair to find a vacant lot. They parked the car, and together they lifted the oddly heavy cardboard box out of Francisco's trunk. They dug a shallow grave and slid Castillo's remains into the hole. Then Francisco drove the doctor home, and they went their separate ways. The next morning, Bali woke up, like any other day, and went to work. But while Bali was opening up his office, two things happened. First, one of La Noria's workers, a shepherd, saw one of his cows leaving the herd and went to investigate. This was a common enough occurrence, but while rounding up the stray, he spotted something strange. A small stack of stones sat in a vacant lot next to the ranch. It surely hadn't been there the day before. As the shepherd got closer, he could smell something foul. Wasting no time, the shepherd ran back to the ranch and phoned the police. Fortunately, two patrol officers were in the area and stopped by to investigate. The officers carefully removed the stone pile and dug up the cardboard box. The smell was even stronger now and only getting worse under the afternoon sun. The officers reported the body, and Homicide Chief Esuebio Lara and Commander Alfonso Gonzalez quickly arrived on the scene. 
Sometime after the cardboard box was dug up, Castillo's aunt called to report her nephew's absence and Bali's odd request for shovels the previous day. It didn't take long for the investigators to piece everything together. When the investigators arrived at Bali's office, they pretended to be patients, quietly waiting to be seen by the doctor. Once Bali ushered the two into his office, they confronted him and arrested him. Bali immediately confessed to the crime— even bragging about his thorough dismemberment and the meticulous way in which he chopped up the body without ever needing to touch a bone. As soon as he'd been loaded into the police's car, Balyu changed his tune, beginning to bargain with the officers, trying to bribe them with money, his office, and even access to his father's pharmaceutical office. It was to no avail. It turns out Castillo wasn't the only person who'd gone missing in the Monterey area. Shortly before Balyu's arrest, there had been several disappearances— Hitchhikers were found dead and buried on the roadside, in a manner not unlike Castillo. Had the doctor been picking off tourists and vagrants? The local newspapers quickly dubbed Dr. Bali Monster of the Workshop, the Werewolf of Nuevo León, and even the Vampire Bali. Despite the similarities in the disappearances, no links were ever proven. When Dr. Bali was brought before a judge, he was sentenced to death. Notably, just days after Askew Dyke Simmons received the same sentence. At the time, most of Mexico had moved away from the death penalty, save for Monterey, where Bali was convicted. The murder charges laid against Bali were categorized as a crime of passion. Despite all that happened, Bali was still an excellent doctor, and when he was moved to Topo Chico, he was allowed to continue his practice and wearing his golden Rolex president. Shortly after this conviction, but before his jail sentence began, Bali married a woman named Dolores Montiel, but she died while Bali was imprisoned. Approximately 20 years after first being sentenced, a local judge commuted it to the next maximum sentence of 20 years. Bali was released in 1981. Bali returned to Nuevo León and reopened his office, the same office where he killed his former lover. There, he continued his practice and offered free services to the poor and elderly. While his infamous crime still hasn't been forgotten, his reputation slowly began to change. The local townsfolk held him in high regard and praised his charitable acts. After being released, Balyu remarried, this time to a woman named Christina. She died only five short years after Balyu's release, but not before they had children— in 2008, reporter Juan Carlos Rodriguez interviewed Dr. Bailly for the Daily Millennial, a local newspaper. Bailly refused to talk about his crimes, saying, If you wish, we can talk about anything else but that. I don't want to relive my dark past. I don't want to awaken my ghosts. It's very difficult. Sometime in the early 2000s, Dr. Bailly lost the ability to walk. Despite this, he continued to offer his services to anyone that needed them. One source even said that Bali never lost his sense of style. He has always been seen wearing suits, colored ensembles, white shoes, and his golden Rolex president. However, in his 2008 interview, he was reported no longer wearing his watch, which he had stuffed in a sock alongside money for safekeeping and accidentally thrown it out. Dr. Alfredo Bali Trevino passed away in his sleep when he was 81, in February 2009. Most accounts claim that Bali didn't know that his brief encounter with Harris inspired the character Dr. Lecter, except for one account published by Latin Times shortly after Bali's passing. 
In the article, an anonymous friend of the family claimed Bali was aware of the character but didn't think much of it until the movie The Silence of the Lambs came out. Sometime after that, his family started making fun of him, occasionally calling him Dr. Lecter. According to the anonymous source, Bali thought it was funny. Insidious Inspirations is a bloody, disgusting podcast. For more information, visit insidious.show. Our host and narrator is Nicole Goodnight. Tonight's writer was Pacific S. Obadiah. Our editor and musician was the incredibly talented Danny Sweet. I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah, and our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska.